Good to be with you this morning, and good to have old friends here. Old friends, that's not a good way to say it. Lifelong friends, how about that? Then, then, then the, the, the age is based on me, not you, see? And we're lifelong friends, so it's only as long as my life. Uh, I would imagine if you pressed hard enough, Cheryl could probably find some pictures of me when I was about Oliver's age, hanging out at her house. Um, with, with her kids, and I have a lot of great memories, just a lot of great memories of those times. Um, some of my best friends in my life uh, are from, from those times, so really glad to, to see them here and uh, glad to be here again to continue our series and continue discussing our man's search for significance. We're nearing the end of this series, and what we've hopefully been able to kind of illuminate and build upon is the concept that we were built with an inherent need for purpose and an inherent need to matter. When we were created, we were created with this purpose and with this significance in the garden as mankind walked with God and, and had this paradise that was given to them that they could live in and, and be fruitful and, and, and dwell with God. And then that went away. And since that time, mankind has tried to fill the gaps in his life with other things to find that significance and purpose. We've talked about the lies we tell ourselves, the performance trap that we find ourselves in, that if we achieve a certain level of success, then we'll be happy. Or the addiction to approval from those around us, that if, if we can receive the approval of others, then we'll be happy. And last week we talked about the downside of those things when we inevitably fail with the blame that we lay at our own feet and at the feet of others and that others lay on us. And that is that if we fail to achieve those things, we are unworthy and we deserve punishment. All of these things affect us spiritually as well as socially and otherwise. They affect us spiritually when we begin to consider our relationship with God. And this week we're going to build on last week's because we talked about blame and how we, we beat ourselves up and bury ourselves under the weight of the mistakes we make to the point that we can no longer see what God has in store for us. We begin to think that we deserve this punishment and that we, we, if we punish ourselves hard enough that maybe God won't have to. It's a very childlike mentality we have. This week we're going to talk about another aspect of that kind of self-flagellation and that is something we call shame shame is a very interesting kind of emotion it's a very interesting kind of uh, of part of who we are and it tells us another lie shame tells us the lie that who we are is who we are and we can never change that if we have dealt with a particular failure or we have been uh, living a life that, that goes a particular direction, that there's no way we can ever divert from that path. We are who we are. This is reinforced often by people around us. Unfortunately, it can be reinforced by people that claim to love us, reinforced by people who take advantage of us, and reinforced by ourselves because we tend to base our self-worth on our past failures. And when we do that, it binds us to a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. That there's nothing we can do about this. Sometimes we do this in minor ways. Uh, we might say, well, I'm not a morning person. Doesn't matter how hard I try, I'm just not a morning person. Now look, I used to be a morning person. I did. 
I, used, I still love the morning. I'd love to be able to get up early and, you know, but I, I'm a preacher. I don't have to. Uh, but no, no, that's not right. Um, I, I have four kids. <laughs> I get up early sometimes when I don't want to. Um, we, we tell ourselves that we're a particular way. I'm not a morning person. I am a morning person. I don't like exercise. I do like exercise. I'm not very disciplined. Or I am very disciplined. We build an image of who we are based on how we've lived. And we very rarely build an image of who we are based on what we know we can be or what we can do because that's not our nature. We hear the voices around us that reinforce this idea that who you are is who you are. In the line of work I'm in, I hear this one a lot. I hear this one a lot. And over the years as I've talked with people and studied with people and encouraged people, particularly it seems, and this is probably a bad sign, those who have been a part of the, the body of Christ or have been involved in church in, in some capacity or used to be very faithful in their attendance to, to church and things like that, and then they drift away from that. Very, very hard to convince them that they're worth the time to bring back into fellowship with their brothers and sisters. Oh, I've been away for so long. I just don't think, I don't think God would really want me there. I've had someone tell me that. I don't know that God would want me there. I've been gone for so long. It was the past that they were laying on themselves as some evidence of the future or what would be the attitude. And as with blame that we talked about last week, it's important to acknowledge our failures. This is not a lesson in ignoring who we have been, but it is an encouragement in understanding that that doesn't necessarily determine who you will be. We should not base our self-worth on our self-worth on our past failures because God doesn't. We talked last week about walking in the light and avoiding the darkness, and we talked about uh, the, the adulterous woman and how Jesus dealt with her. And John jokingly pointed something out to me uh, later that day that the only person there was without sin was Jesus. You know, and he could have picked up a stone and started throwing it because he said like, he was without sin, cast the first stone. And that, that, was, that was kind of funny as he meant it as a joke. And then I got to thinking about it. Isn't that the point of the story? We take the point as, oh, those people didn't have the authority to condemn. But that's the whole point is that Jesus did. Based on his standard that he laid out, he who is without sin, Jesus had the right to cast the stone. And he didn't. And he said as much, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That is the point. Sometimes the most impressive things about God are not the things he does, but the things he doesn't do. He is a God that withholds his hand. Remember the story of David? When David took a census when he wasn't supposed to, and God brought disease on the land? Well, he gave him some options. And, and how would you like to have a multiple-choice punishment? I mean, really, uh, how fortunate. So uh, David chose C, which is the best thing to do on any standardized test, if you don't know the answer, and a pestilence is brought onto the land and killed thousands of God's people. And finally, David prays and God stops 
literally God says in the text, that's enough. That's enough. God, in his ability to withhold punishment, to withhold condemnation, is unlike anything the world has ever seen. And just like we talked about blame last week and the need we have to blame ourselves and blame others, shame is the long-lasting effect of that blame. Chronic blame brings about a labeling of oneself as hopeless, helpless, and unable to change. It leads to apathy. It leads to anger and resentment. It leads to a lack of ability to act on that which we know to be true and that which we are called to. Now, again, I don't want us to think that avoiding this trap of of shame is to avoid acknowledgement of sin. Very clearly, ignoring sin makes Christ meaningless. If, If we think we don't have any sin, then what is the point of Jesus? Living in sin makes Christ's sacrifice vain and worthless. And, but, in the same way, defining us by our sin makes, makes the sacrifice of Christ useless. Ignoring our sin is no better than defining ourselves by our sin and vice versa. Yes, the reality of who we have been exists, but it is not who we are and not who we have to be if Christ is in our life. How do we see our sin? And how do we see it in the context of our forgiveness. That is our challenge, and that challenge has an answer. We have to grasp the destructive power of shame and understand that it's a tool that Satan uses. God calls us in Scripture to acknowledge and recognize our sin, but he does not call us to stay in it either by action or emotionally to remain in it and define ourselves that way because he does not define us that way. He defines us as his children who are dearly loved. He defines us as worthy of the sacrifice of his son. Does he point out our mistakes? Certainly. Does he point out where we need to change and call us to something better? Yes, absolutely. But he doesn't let us stay where we were. He transforms us. Last week, the answer to the blame, the answer to this this problem we have of saying that somehow we're on the hook for these things was the propitiation of Jesus Christ standing in our place. And this week we'll talk about the answer to our shame as the regenerative power of Christ's sacrifice. Regeneration is actually a pretty amazing thing because there are several species on this planet that are capable of it. Um, While we were at camp there was a kid there. Uh, you know, you always have these kids at a session. They just love catching critters. And this kid caught a lizard, and it dropped its tail. Have you ever seen a lizard drop its tail? It's a defense mechanism. They will disconnect a part of their body and run off and then grow a new one. Starfish, very famously, can regenerate. Human beings can regenerate to a point. Um, I've got banged up and bruised being at camp, and those wounds are starting to heal. You might have noticed I haven't, I haven't been wearing my wedding ring since I got back. I, uh, I punched a sharp rock, not intentionally, but it shouldn't have mouthed off. Um, I, no water came out of it, and I wasn't a band from the promised land, but I did strike a rock, and it cut me pretty bad on a couple of my fingers. And it's starting to heal up. 
because our cells grow and divide and regenerate. I was reading a study. I'm not that boring, but sometimes I read studies. Uh, I was reading a study. It was of interest to me because you'll remember when my dad was sick uh, back in the, in, around Christmas. One of the things that happened to him or what happened to him that caused him to, to uh, be on a ventilator in the ICU was a, a, an autoimmune response. And it has to do with these immune cells in your body called cytokines. And they get fired up and they go nuts and they start attacking your own body and it's a positive feedback loop where it begins to tell your body to produce more of them and more of them. It's actually, in some ways, the reaction that these vaccines are producing in your body to make you immune or at least to some degree immune to COVID itself. Uh, that's what it triggers. It triggers that part of your body. But these cells, these immune cells, have only really been known much about for the last 15 or so years. They've been studying it. And researchers have begun to unlock the power of the immune system to do some pretty amazing things. For instance, regenerating certain types of cells. That's a hard thing to do in certain parts of the body. Uh, paralysis is the result of the severing of nerve endings, nerve cells. The nerve cells in your spine are all joined together in this core. We call it, you know, the spinal cord. It's just a collection of cells that are joined together. In your eye, you have an optic nerve at the back of your retina, and it's a series of cells joined together. And when those become separated, things stop working. Researchers have begun to see ways that they can trigger certain immune responses that will bind to those nerves and rebuild them. And the hard part, they say, is not growing a, ner a nerve cell. We can grow a nerve cell, but how do you get them to connect to one another, reach out and form these these chains. Well, they can do that in the same way that these vaccines work. They reprogram, reverse engineer the cell they want and inject you with a virus that codes your body to produce that cell and amazing things happen. And these researchers are curing things like blindness and they hope one day to cure paralysis with immunotherapy. Allowing your body and training your body to regenerate. Now, this is all possible because of the things God created in this world. The things that have always existed. And really, amazingly, the things that have happened in nature. And God put us here in this world with all of these realities and said, go and explore and figure it out and find it out. And we've discovered things like antibiotics and, and optic nerves and all of that. But God was doing regeneration long before we discovered how. Jesus met people along the way in his, in his ministry. Some who were physically ailing. I've always wondered, this healing thing, why did he do that? Why did Jesus become a minor regional celebrity for his healing? You know, when we see faith healers on TV or we hear people talk, we kind of, you know, we kind of scoff at it and we sigh and we roll our eyes. We accept it when it's Christ, but have you ever wondered why he did that? I think there's probably a lot of reasons to demonstrate his authority and his power, to focus the attention of those who were following him, to meet the needs of people who were physically ailing. But I believe that so much of what Jesus did was to teach us concepts about who he was. And Jesus is one who regenerates that which is broken. He puts it back together. The physical manifestation of it would be things like leprosy, a horrible, destructive disease. It would eat the flesh right off of your body. 
And Jesus, unafraid, would touch those people, would restore them. We see that happening with a man whose friends broke through the roof of a house to lower him down because he couldn't walk. And we don't know the medical reasons for the inability to walk. I like all the, also how the Bible refers to those people as lame. I just like how language changes. I'm sure he was a fun guy at parties, but, but he couldn't walk. Okay? Maybe we should adjust our translations here and there. But these people that they couldn't walk, they couldn't see. Remember the blind man that was healed where, where Jesus put the mud on his eyes and told him to wash it off and, and he could see eventually. Jesus did these things and in part, I believe, to demonstrate the regenerative power that he possesses when he's a part of our life. The Apostle Paul uh, reinforces this idea. In the verse that was read this morning, let's expand on that. Let's look at Romans chapter 6 for a minute. Because as we said, acknowledging our sin and accepting our shortcomings is very different from being defined by it and living in it. And that's what the Apostle Paul here writes about. Because he's talking about grace. He's talking about being made righteous through faith and eternal life in Christ. And he says in verse 1, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? This is a bit of a almost sarcastic and rhetorical question. Are we just to keep sinning? And the more we sin, the more grace comes in to fill the gap. Should we just celebrate the grace of God by sinning more? No, of course not, Paul says. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, this is an important point because we have a tough time sometimes reconciling the idea of being made righteous by faith, being justified by faith, being saved by our faith in Christ, not by the works of our own merit or works of righteousness, but by being made whole by the simple faith in Christ. But are we called to a certain standard of living? Are we called to certain things of obedience as a part of that faith. I think that the vast majority of Scripture would reinforce that fact that, yes, we are. We are called to a certain way of life. We are called to a certain standard. We are called to a certain kind of obedience at times. And how do we reconcile the fact that it's not the obedience that saves us, but the obedience is still required? Well, it's not that it's required as a means to save us. It's that it's required because how can you not live that way if you've truly been transformed? We wrestle with things like James. In our Bible class this morning, we talked about in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, where he talks about this same thing. The idea that we will live differently if we are clothed with Christ. Paul talks about that here in chapter 6. Just because you've lived a certain way doesn't mean you have to keep living that way. Acknowledge who you've been, but commit yourself to being someone different. And then don't live with the burden of who you were. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? This is a, 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 a biblical uh, tool here called metonymy. Metonymy is where we have a part standing in for a whole. Where when we're baptized into his death, the, the Bible says, we're baptized into the benefits of his death. So when we clothe ourselves with Christ, 
we take on the elements that Christ experienced for ourselves. This is both figurative and literal, which is very hard to wrap our mind around. Now, I don't literally die. My life doesn't end physically when I go into the water, but it does end in a way, Paul tells us. So it's both figurative and literal, uh, and which is hard. That's hard, but stick with it. <coughs> Excuse me. Those who've been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Again, we're receiving the benefits of that death. We didn't literally go into a grave, but with him we did because we were baptized into him. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul is talking about regeneration. He's talking about being rebuilt and reborn. And in the same breath that he acknowledges that we are sinful and fallen and broken people, he also acknowledges that Christ is the answer to that sinful, broken life and that the result is a new you, a new person, a new way of living. Why do we burden ourselves with a shame? Why do we haul around that garbage when God doesn't see it? God doesn't look at that. Who we were died on the cross, and we ought to leave that person there. And yet every day so many of us, myself included, wake up with the burden of who we used to be. And every time we mess up, it reminds us of who we used to be. And eventually we convince ourselves that who we used to be is who we will always be. And what is even the point anymore? I can't change. I'll never be good enough. Jesus says, I'm not asking you to be good enough. I'm asking you to trust me to make you what God needs you to be. Acknowledging our sin, accepting who we've been, but seeing ourselves as regenerated, reborn people through the death of Christ. If we cannot accept the regeneration that comes from the resurrection, which we have joined with him in, Paul tells us. If you died with him, you're raised with him. If we can't accept the regenerative properties of that, of that resurrection, then how can we accept the saving properties of the death? The two go together. You can't say, well, sure, I've been baptized and I believe in Jesus and I know he saved me, but boy, I sure am a rotten person. You, you can't accept one without the other. If you died with him, Paul says, then you've been raised with him. And you're, you're new. You're different. You're reborn. In our search for significance, in our search for purpose, we are often derailed by the crimes against ourselves, By living in the past by living as something or seeing something that God doesn't see anymore. It is an insult to the cross of Christ to hold yourself to the standard of your past. Let me say that again. It is an insult to the cross of Christ to hold yourself to the standard of your past. You are a new creature. And inasmuch as that means that you should live a life 
free of sin and that you should walk in paths of righteousness, it also means that when you do veer from that path, you don't continue to tell yourself that there's no way you can get back on it. We want to avoid sin. But the failure to avoid sin is not an indication of your worthiness to God. The failure to avoid sin is, if nothing else, a confirmation that we need Christ. And we ought to celebrate the fact that we have that opportunity. It's time to let go of beating ourselves up. It's time to walk in paths of righteousness, accepting who we are, and that Jesus Christ stands in the gap where we lack perfection, he brings completion. We are children of God, purchased, adopted, and brought into the family. And when God sees us, he doesn't see what we see. So ask yourself, is his sacrifice big enough to cover my sin? Or is my sin greater than the blood of Christ could ever erase? And if you think the second one is true, then I have to ask you, who do you think you are? I mean, the arrogance to think that your sin is somehow so special and so great that Christ isn't enough? Who do you think you are? The creator of the universe gave his son allowed him to be killed, his blood shed for you. And if you think you're too bad for that, you're mistaken. You are not unworthy, and you are not helpless or hopeless. You are surrounded by equally fallen, broken people saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we hold one another up and we say to each other, shame has no place in this family. Who we have been is not who we are, and it is not who we are going to be. We are not perfect, but we are not what we used to be. We are children of God in a family of love and encouragement and steadfastness. Let's be that. If we can help you do that in any way. We want to pray for you and walk with you and encourage you and love you as best we can. And if we can help you, let us know as we stand together and Marvin leads us in song.